Hey, uh, so this morning, um, I, but just a quick disclaimer. So I, I practiced the message this morning, and I was like flying through the message really quick because I'm so excited about what I have to share. So if I go too fast, we're in World Series time, so just sort of like give me the sign like this, like Clark, just go to the letters if, if I go too fast and I'll know, okay, right? Nose, ear, and then the letters and I'll know I'm going too fast, okay? Um, so, but this is one of those weeks that I think that you're going to want to take notes on what I say. Um, and it's one of those messages that I think is going to apply to some of you today, right now, right here with what you're going through. Um, but for everybody here, down the road, you're going to want to remember what God's Word said in Romans chapter 8. Um, and, and so, and we've got the notes that you can take notes on and a binder to keep them in so you can keep track of them. Um, but it's really interesting just how much each week through the book of Romans, and I don't know about you, but I have loved going through the book of Romans here on Sunday mornings, reading it uh, every day in my own time with the Lord. Um, but it's one of those things where it's just been so uh, full and enriched towards where life is right now. Last week, uh, if you're here, we talked about the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, and how in all of us there's this conflict of we want to do what God wants us to do, but we don't always do it. And that can be very frustrating for us. And so how do we kind of get over that? And we looked at Romans 8, 5 that says, but those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And we talked about how we want to feed the Spirit but starve the flesh. Feed the things that are our minds on God and starve those things where our minds are taken off of God or on sinful things and just how that helps us to live the way that God wants us to live. And so this morning as we look into Romans 8, I really feel like we're going to have just an incredibly practical time of looking at God's Word and how it applies to us, whether in the moment or maybe a little bit down the road. So let's pray together. God, thank you so much um, for what you have in store for us today. Uh, I have just been so excited and energized by it uh, over this last week, and I pray, God, that you would um, speak to hearts and minds today uh, and that, that everybody here would get that same kind of I got it, aha sort of thing um, that I wrestled with and understood this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse uh, 15, and we're going to talk about, and I'm going to read three verses to you to start with, and these are uh, things that are true if you are a Christian. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, then these things are true. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're kind of checking things out, you're not a believer, you're trying to figure out, do I believe this stuff? I think you'll hear this and go, I, I want that. I want that to be true for me, and in your own time, I pray that you would become a Christian, but this is true of those people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Beginning of verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that our spirit, that we are children of God, and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And in these three verses, it talks about three things that are true of us. These are true of you if you're a Christian. These are true of me as a Christian. The first is that you are 
adopted. You'd write down, I am adopted. You are adopted as a child of God. Now, when Paul was writing this, um, adoption, the way that it worked is that adoption was really not so much for the child, but for the adult. In other words, that you had a, a property, you had wealth, you had whatever you had, and that needed to go to an heir. And so if you uh, did not have a child, if you couldn't have a child or whatever, whatever reason you didn't have a child, then you would adopt somebody into your family. It could be a child, it could be an adult, but you would adopt somebody into your family and they would become your heir to a number of different things. And so three things would happen in that culture when you were adopted. First of all, all of your debts would be paid. Second is that you would get a new name and a new identity as the child of whoever it was that adopted you. And third is you had an obligation to honor your new father, your new parents. And Paul uses that metaphor, that expression, because that's true of us. When you were adopted into God's family, all of the debt of your sin was paid. You had a new identity in Christ, and you have an obligation to honor your father. The second benefit of being a Christian is, he uses this phrase, Abba Father, that we are invited to call God Abba Father. And Abba is the, it's the most intimate name that a person would call their own father. It would be like calling your dad, daddy, right? And, and God invites us to have that sort of intimate relationship with him, to call him Abba, Father. And then the third is that you are an heir, that you are an heir, and you're also called a co-heir with Christ, meaning that in your future is heaven. So those are the three things that you are, because you're a Christian, based on these three verses. Now, I want you to imagine that you're a Christian in the first century here. You're familiar with what Paul has taught in the book of Romans, that these things are all true of you. But then, one night, the Roman guard comes to your house, knocks on your door, and drags you out of your house. And they drag you down to the prison, and they beat you until they say, you need to renounce Jesus. And they say, you need to share with us all the people that come to your church that meets at your home. And they keep beating on you until you do that. And there would be this disconnect that goes, I don't get this. I'm adopted. God says, call him daddy. And I'm an heir, and then I'm getting beaten for my faith. This doesn't make sense. Or imagine that you are Christian, and you are living in Jerusalem. Or maybe you're living in Judea, in a place that's more of a Jewish area, and you've become a Christian. And you know these things to be true, that you're adopted, that you can call God Abba, Father, and that you're an heir. And you've looked at the Old Testament scriptures, and you can see that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and you say, yes, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And then your family hears about that, and they will have nothing to do with you, because you're a traitor to the faith. You're no longer Jewish. You're this other cult kind of thing, and you're distanced. You're estranged from your family. 
and you would remember, wait, I'm adopted as God's child. I'm a, 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 I, he invites me to call him Abba Father. I'm an heir. I'm getting heaven. Why is this stuff happening to me? And there's a disconnect that you would live with in your life. And then Paul writes this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time the fact that we are all these things because we are in Christ, he knows that. He says, and there will be suffering along with that. And it's difficult to reconcile those two things, but that difficulty comes in our lives as well. Because we suffer, maybe not in the same ways. We suffer in some of the same ways and also in some different ways. But think about the suffering that maybe you've experienced or that you've seen in the world around you. Suffering is when you get that diagnosis from the doctor that says, we found a tumor. We need to do a biopsy. Suffering is when your boss calls you in at the end of the day and says, your services are no longer needed at this place of employment. Suffering is when you read a text on your spouse's phone that seems pretty evident that they're having an affair of some sort with somebody else. Suffering is when time, month after month after month, you're trying to have a child and you can't conceive. And on and on the list goes of the ways that we suffer in life. And it's hard to have that suffering. We also know that I'm a child of God. He says, call me Abba, Father. I don't doesn't quite make sense. I read a statistic this week. Uh, and it may be more of a subjective opinion than an actual statistic. But the person said this. He said, the number one reason that people leave the Christian faith is because of suffering. That they can't reconcile a good God with the suffering in their lives, lives or the suffering that they see around them. Romans chapter 8, what we're going to read, reconciles these two things. Because here's the thing is, as we look at, you look at the Bible as a whole, a lot of people say the book of Romans is the centerpiece of the entire Bible. And people further say, and Romans chapter 8 is the centerpiece of the book of Romans. <clears throat> and so we're gonna, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at six promises that God gives to us. And there are six promises that are true all the time, but I think there are six promises that really kind of rise to the occasion when we face suffering in our lives. And we're going to talk about these six promises, uh, and then we're actually going to bring the band up, and we're going to kind of sing in response or worship in response to these six promises. So let me read to you chapter 8, uh, chapter eight verse 18. Again, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So here's the first promise. The glory that's to be revealed is that heaven awaits us, that heaven awaits us. That is an incredible promise. And he says that, that what we're going through at this present time is nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us, saying that now, right now, in the middle of whatever suffering you're going through, it feels really hard, really difficult, but there's a glory that awaits. A couple of verses later, I'm not going to read it to you, but he talks about childbirth. He makes this comparison to childbirth and the groans and the pains of childbirth. And no surprise, I've never actually given birth to anybody. Uh, my mom did 53 years ago, I suppose. But 
but there's but when a woman goes through childbirth there is this incredible pain that they go through but the beauty on the other side of it of this child is incredible and paul's using that as an example yes the suffering that you're going through right now is awful and terrible but there is heaven on the other side there is glory on the other side then he says this verse 25 he says but if we hope for what we see we do not excuse me but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience now there's no promise there but it is good to remember patience because we don't know how long the suffering is going to be with us or around us and sometimes it's short and sometimes it's long and it says this, verse 26 and 27. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, here's the promise. I'll give you the promise. The promise is this. The Spirit prays when I cannot. The Spirit prays when I cannot. And, and I'll tell you, of the six promises that we're going to talk about, this is the one that I don't quite grasp entirely. Like, I don't quite understand how all this fits together, and I've been praying about it, trying to figure out, maybe somebody understands better than I am. It's just, it's a, there's an oddness to it. It says that the, the Holy Spirit intercedes on my behalf. That the Holy Spirit is praying to God that, that the outcome would be as it would. And, and, and in one sense, I don't fully grasp it. But in the other sense, I absolutely love it. Because there are times when just life is hard. Life sucks. Life is just difficult. And it's like, I don't know what to pray. Like, what I want to pray is that everything would get better for me. Like, just make my life better and more comfortable no matter what else happens. That's, that's what I want to pray. But the sense here is that the Holy Spirit intercedes and is praying, and it says, um, it says, according to the will of God. And the Holy Spirit will intercede on my behalf with God, that God's will will be done, not Matt's will and Matt's comfort will be done. Then he continues on in verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse, that we know that all things work together for good, for those who are called to his purpose. That this is one of the most helpful verses when people are going through suffering, when people are going through difficult times. And this is the most, one of the most harmful verses when people are going through suffering because people misuse it and abuse it and kind of give false hope to somebody who's going through suffering. So I want to talk for a few minutes about what does this verse mean, but as equally important, what does this verse not mean so that we don't misuse it in a um, failed attempt to comfort somebody else in their suffering. First of all, this is a promise not to everybody. It's a promise to those who love God, to those who are believers in Christ. So it's important to remember that. But second, it's important to remember that the promise is not good for a specific person. 
The promise is that God will turn out things good in a sense for all those who are believers in Christ. And sometimes we can kind of twist this, and probably innocently so, and say, this is going to turn out good for you. For you. I don't know why you're doing this, but it's going to turn out good for you. And the fact is, that's not what it says. It says, according to his purpose. So here's the promise. God works out suffering for the ultimate good. God works out suffering for the ultimate good. So then what is the ultimate good? Sometimes when somebody goes through suffering, the ultimate good becomes evident very quickly. You know, somebody gets pulled over for a DUI or something bad happens, and it's kind of a wake-up call in their lives. And they're like, oh my goodness, I need to head towards God. And, and you can see it, and they can see it, and it becomes evident fairly quickly. Or other times, you know, maybe you've been through a painful breakup, and just the, the breakup with that guy or that girl was so painful, and then you're a week past it, and it's like your eyes are open. You're like, wow, I didn't realize how hurtful or how bad or how dangerous or, or how whatever that relationship was, and you kind of see with new eyes the world and God and relationships, and sometimes that happens. But sometimes when we go through suffering, it's really hard to see the ultimate good that comes out of it. And I think sometimes what we do in an attempt, in a, in, in a, in a, with the right intention to help somebody going through suffering, we share this verse, it's going to turn out for good, like look at this little thing that good that happened here, look at this good thing that happened there, and maybe that is the good that God has, but I think a lot of times we don't see the ultimate good that God brings out of suffering on this side of heaven. That we can point and say, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, but until everything comes to a close, we don't necessarily know. Four years ago, um, some of my best friends in the world, James and Laura Granger, lost their son to cancer. We were actually with them this past weekend, or this past few days in New York, and, um, and had some good conversations. And, and, but one of the things um, that, that James and Laura did when, uh, with their son um, is close to the end of his life, um, somebody gave him like a really large sum of money. Just, it was sort of an odd thing, but that's a kind of story for a different time. But they said to him, Luke, what do you want to do with this money? And he knew that, that his life, the months of his life were, um, were measured, were coming to a close. And he said, I want to set up a fund so that kids can go to Young Life Camp and they can hear about Jesus. That's what I want to do. And they said, okay, well, let's put this aside. And they called this fund the Luke Legacy Fund, um, because, partly because Luke's uh, leg was amputated as part of his battle with cancer. And so it's kind of a memorial in that way as well. Um, and so, and then people added to it in, in lots of different ways. And, um, and so in the last four years, over 400 kids have gone to Young Life Camp and have heard the gospel, and many have given their lives to Christ as a result of the Luke Legacy Fund. And so, talking with Laura, um, not this pastor, but in the past about it, and, um, and just how awesome that is, and how what greater purpose that is that came out of Luke's passing. Um, and I remember her saying this to me, and she said, in talking about these foreign kids that have gone to camp and have heard about Christ, and many given their lives to Christ, she said, I love that that has happened. I love that these kids have gone to camp, 
But you know what? I'd rather have my son back. And it was one of those things that was just a moment for me that we said, yeah, God has purpose in that, but that doesn't discount the pain of the suffering. And I, and I share that with you just as a reminder to us that we want to comfort people, but we don't always know the answer. That we're looking, it's kind of like looking at one side of a tapestry. You know, if we were to put a tapestry up there and it'd be a picture of, you know, a, a landscape or a crown or, or whatever it is, and you can see it from one side, but if you turn that tapestry over, it's threads going every which way. And you can kind of make out what's going on on the other side of the tapestry, but it's, it, it, you, you don't see clearly. And that's what this is talking about, that on this side of heaven, we don't know what the ultimate good is that comes from the suffering that we go through. We can kind of take some guesses and maybe figure it out, but on the other side of heaven, that we will see clearly why God did what he did or why God allowed what he allowed. I'm going to give you a couple more promises. This is from verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The promise is that be, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that suffering helps me to be like Jesus. Suffering helps me to be like Jesus. We talked about this about three or four weeks ago in the book of Romans in chapter 5. Um, I encourage you to look back at that. I think it's Romans 5, 3 through 5. Um, so I don't want to talk about that too much. I do want to share one story about this. Um, some of you may have heard uh, of a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. And she had a diving accident when she was in high school uh, that, allowed, that made her be paralyzed from the shoulders down. And so she spent her life from teenage years uh, and I believe she's still alive, in a wheelchair. Uh, and she ended up becoming a, a speaker and an author and an artist. And, um, but this is what she said. She said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I'll be walking and I'll be pushing the wheelchair. And then she continued, she said, I'm going to thank God for every character-refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. So she recognizes, like, God used that wheelchair to refine her character. But then she says this, and I think it's so insightful. And she's, then she said, and then I'm going to go to Jesus and ask him to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed because of the wreckage of sin. And it's just so interesting. She says, like, this helped me, but would you send this straight to hell because there's sin in this world? Here's the fifth promise from verse 31. It says this. It says, What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the next promise. Is God is for you. God is for me. God is for you. You know, when we go through suffering, a big part of the suffering is the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of what's going to happen to my body. What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my marriage? What's going to happen to my future? There's all of those fears. 
And what this promise says, that if God is for you, then nothing can stand against us. If God sacrificed his own son for you, then he's going to give you every other thing that you need. He already gave you his son Jesus as a sacrifice. And so when we're in the midst of prayer, excuse me, when we're in the midst of suffering and we pray, we pray things. And, and we definitely should pray for God's will and for us in the midst of suffering. But if you pray for an answer today and you don't get an answer or the answer that you're looking for, then you don't need that answer today. If you pray for healing and you don't get healing, then you don't need healing. If you pray for a husband this year and you don't get a husband this year, you don't need a husband this year. If you pray for an A on a test and you don't get an A on the test, you need to study more. You see, if God sacrificed his son for you, he'll give us every other good thing that we need. And the last promise comes from verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then continue down to verse 38. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the sixth promise, is nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I'm going to talk about this for a moment. The band is going to come back up, and then we're going to kind of respond to this in worship. If you look at the verses that I read, Paul has two different lists that are going on. In verse 35, he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Those are the very real sufferings that the people that he was writing to the very first in the first century were dealing with and we might change that a little bit for our purposes who shall separate us from the love of christ shall loss of job or financial stress or cancer or infertility or car wrecks or covid or racism or physical abuse separate us from the love of christ no nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then down in verse 38, he gives these pairs. He says, neither death nor life, that's the human experience, neither angels or demons, that's the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, neither the present nor the future, that's the time continuum, neither heights nor depths, that is, we can go anywhere in the world. He says, and if that doesn't cover it, nor anything in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. And you know what else is a part of creation that can't separate you from the love of Christ? You. Your sin, your rebellion, your attitude, your actions, your words, not even you can separate you from the love of Christ. That's how much God loves you. We're going to sing together. If I could ask you to stand, the band is going to sing, and I just want to read to you again these words from the book of Romans. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.